Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, medical malpractice, mental health conditions, and substance abuse that may be upsetting. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. On a daily basis, surgeons hold life and death in their hands. In operating rooms, they have the capacity to alleviate pain and permanently improve the lives of their patients. But such remarkable power comes with an immense liability. One wrong move of the scalpel can turn a routine procedure into a disaster. So doctors must take great care to act with precision. Failure is not an option. Unfortunately, failure was Dr. Christopher Dunch's modus operandi. Everything he attempted, sports, business, relationships, sobriety, went awry. But that didn't stop him from attempting spine surgery. And while Texas hospitals originally chose to turn a blind eye to their failing neurosurgeon, it wouldn't take long for them to learn that, left unchecked, Dunch's failures were lethal. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm very happy to assist Alistair with some medical insight into our final episode of the case of Christopher Dunch, our spine surgeon who lost his way and his patients somewhere between the esophagus and the vocal cords. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our second episode on Dr. Christopher Dunch, also known as Dr. Death. Through botched spinal surgeries, this neurosurgeon killed two patients and maimed dozens at various hospitals in Dallas, Texas between 2011 and 2013. And it seems some of his failed operations may have been intentional. Last episode, we covered Dunch's questionable medical training and his first few disastrous surgeries. This time, we'll explore the deadly operations that sent his colleagues running to the authorities. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. In early 2012, Dr. Christopher Dunch's life was a mess. He'd pursued wealth through his career, but it seemed he ran into failures at every turn. His hopes to become a college football star didn't pan out. He was fired from a startup he helped found, 
Among his many debts, he owed a significant amount in student loans and $220,000 to his own father. And he had a girlfriend and young child relying on him. A new career as a spinal neurosurgeon may have seemed like the only answer. However, Dunch couldn't successfully operate to save his life. After being fired from the Minimally Invasive Spine Institute and then maiming several patients on his operating table at Baylor Regional Medical Center at Plano, Texas, it was clear he was unqualified, to say the least. In March 2012, Dunch's patient Kelly Martin died after losing large quantities of blood during a surgery. Naturally, Baylor Plano looked into Dunch's record. What they found surprised them. Dunch hadn't just messed up his recent surgeries. He'd also made a mistake when he called for many of them in the first place. For months, Dunch had been delivering completely unnecessary procedures. Classifying a surgery as necessary or unnecessary may be very straightforward in some cases, but it can sometimes be tricky given the host of variables and medical perspectives involved. According to a recent and broad-scoping physician survey conducted by the American Medical Association, doctors feel that over 11% of all surgeries performed in the United States are unnecessary in line with the predominant consensus of physicians who participated in this AMA survey, overtreatment in general is surprisingly common too, and this includes prescribing medications, performing diagnostic tests, and surgeries. Some of the reasons they cite are concerns over malpractice, difficulties in accessing relevant medical records, and pressure from patients. There's also the fact that surgeons in hospitals stand to gain financially from performing operations, which further makes this issue difficult to neatly encapsulate. This is unfortunately a pretty gray area of medicine, Alistair. Gray area or not, in their investigation, Baylor Plano uncovered a surgery Dunch had performed in November 2011 that was more than unnecessary. It was idiotic. Dunch hadn't even operated on the right body part. Not every surgery goes as well as hoped, but this is shocking. Dunch must have really been out to lunch, so to speak, given how irresponsible this was. I've never had to treat anyone after a botched surgery, but a friend and colleague of mine did during his medical internship. There was a young man who'd been taken to the hospital for a routine tonsillectomy, and during the procedure, his breathing tube kinked, cutting off his flow of oxygen. Unfortunately, by the time the operating team figured this out, he'd already experienced anoxic brain damage or brain damage from oxygen deprivation. My friend was in the middle of an ICU rotation when this happened, and when the patient arrived at the intensive care unit, he was assigned to his case. The man had fallen into a coma because of this surgical mistake, and believe it or not, he didn't wake up for about eight months. During his time at the hospital, he was closely monitored and treated with a feeding tube. The incident, unfortunately, also left him with permanent walking difficulties. What happened to this poor guy represents sheer negligence and malpractice, something Dunch himself should have been more familiar with. Somehow, 
Dunch escaped any malpractice lawsuits. Publicly, the hospital didn't even blame him for Kelly Martin's death. Instead, the medical examiner claimed the woman's passing was a tragic accident, most likely the result of, quote, a therapeutic misadventure. Behind closed doors, however, executives at Baylor Plano faced a tough decision. Though they'd invested significant funds in Dunch's onboarding, many suspected that he was at fault for a patient's death. And the problem went deeper than they knew. In secret, Dunch's alcoholism and drug use was worsening. His behavior grew more reckless. He routinely cheated on his live-in girlfriend and wrote his mistress increasingly unhinged emails. In one, Dunch claimed that he could, quote, cross every disciplinary boundary like it's a playground and never, ever lose. In that same message, Dunch said that others saw him as a mix of God, Einstein, and the Antichrist. And deep down, he was ready to become a cold-blooded killer. Though the sentiments are downright appalling, it's impossible to tell whether Dunch meant them earnestly or in jest. Yet one fact remains clear. Any normal doctor wouldn't brag or joke about getting away with mistakes or causing harm to patients. Though the hospital wasn't privy to this dastardly email, they did eventually ask for Dunch's resignation. However, they still chose not to tell anyone about their growing concern over his medical skills. In fact, when they negotiated the resignation with Dunch's lawyer, they went so far as promising a positive letter of reference. Despite this letter, Dunch had a difficult time finding his next position. His bad reputation had spread through the area and into his personal life. Kimberly Morgan, Dunch's assistant turned mistress, abruptly broke off the relationship once Dunch resigned from the hospital. Dunch did not take the breakup well. His ego was likely too fragile to accept that someone would willingly break up with him. One night in early April 2012, Dunch banged on Morgan's doors and windows, drunkenly demanding to be let inside. It was another failure, but Dunch was confident he could slide past it like he had so many times before. Morgan didn't allow him in, and soon after, she secured a restraining order. As far as we can tell, Dunch was able to keep the entire situation secret from his girlfriend Wendy, who remained with him and raised their young son. His affair may have run its course, but his luck hadn't. Soon after, Dallas Medical Center gave him the chance to work out of their facilities. Dunch was relieved. Being able to perform surgeries would help him get back to paying off his debts, and apparently, his bad reputation hadn't yet reached the halls of this facility. If it had, it seems Dallas Medical Center was apparently willing to look past it. They needed a doctor who could perform expensive and profitable surgeries. To put some meat on this, Alistair, the average neurosurgeon makes their hospital over $2 million in revenue annually. 
It's important to remember that although hospital facilities exist to help people, their businesses, just like any other, run by individuals who are seeking profit. In this way, they're incentivized to keep doctors around who can perform complex and costly surgeries. This priority is especially apparent in hospitals without a plethora of specialty surgeons, which was probably a dilemma Dallas Medical Center was facing in regard to Dr. Dunch. To put this into perspective, Dallas Medical Center is a 155-bed community hospital, much smaller than most private, urban, and major university hospitals, which usually have between 600 to 800 beds. It's likely that Dallas Medical Center was in need of spinal surgeons, which would have made Dunch a valuable asset for them. On the other hand, it's ethically and morally irresponsible for a hospital's board of directors to hire someone with a bad reputation. And it's completely reprehensible if the person poses a physical threat to patients. Keeping the lights on is crucial for the survival of any business, but hospitals always need to prioritize patient safety over money. In this case, the Dallas Medical Center prioritized money. The hospital was so eager to have a money-making surgeon that they granted Dunch temporary surgical privileges while their reference checks were still in process. As part of those checks, they contacted the Baylor Regional Medical Center at Plano, which replied with a letter stating that Dunch was never placed under administrative suspension or restrictions. The severe omissions made it seem like he'd done nothing wrong. So, the Dallas Medical Center happily brought Dr. Dunch on board. Coming up, Dr. Dunch heads back into the operating room. Since the beginning of time, people have wanted to believe in an afterlife. Hi listeners, I'm Shelby Scott. In Mediums, a new Spotify original from Parcast, I take a closer look at the mortal lives of spiritualists who claim to communicate with the dead and the scientists who tried to debunk them. This eight-episode series looks at paranormal events proven to be hoaxes and those which have mystified even the world's greatest skeptics. Mixing history, mystery, and social psychology, Mediums asks how these self-proclaimed psychics pulled off the illusion of interacting with the dead, even under a microscope of criticism. Were they all simply peddling parlor tricks, or was there something truly paranormal going on? Break out your Ouija board, dust off your crystal ball, or light some candles, because Parcast is ready to reveal what's really known about the unknown. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Mediums, Summon new episodes every Wednesday, free and only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. In the summer of 2012, 41-year-old Dr. Christopher Dunch had been working as a surgeon for just under a year. In that time, he'd maimed multiple patients, killed one, and been forced to resign from two different jobs. Shockingly, he'd secured new surgical privileges with Dallas Medical Center, whose administrators knew nothing of Dunch's past failed procedures. So, on Dunch went, left to operate on vulnerable patients. 
One of the first patients Dunch operated on at Dallas Medical Center was 64-year-old Floella Brown. She was a banker on the verge of retirement, and lately, her neck and shoulder aches had become impossible to ignore. After an exam, Dr. Dunch recommended cervical spine surgery. Floella agreed to go under the knife. And on July 24, 2012, Christopher Dunch scrubbed in for another spinal procedure. Half an hour into the surgery, Floella began bleeding heavily. Dunch had made the exact same mistake he had with Jerry Summers. He damaged the vertebral artery. Now, he knew he'd nicked the vertebral artery in his past patients, but either intentionally or because of his wild incompetence, he didn't stop himself from doing it again. Making this mistake more than once is a sign of severe incompetence, but repeating the screw-up in such a short time interval is pretty amazing. Among spinal surgeons, the overly cautious treatment and avoidance of the vertebral artery are well understood because it's so repeatedly stressed in their training. Trauma to this artery can be lethal due to the blood vessel's immense pressure and its delicate location within the neck. Part of a spinal surgeon's training is a constant reminder of the vertebral artery's vulnerability by emphasizing the four A's, anatomy, assessment, avoidance, and action. This checklist not only provides surgeons with the artery's roadmap, but also the landmines that surround it and how to safely navigate around them. It's hard to identify the reasons behind Dunch's epic bungling here, but it's clear he hadn't learned or didn't care to learn his lesson. Who knows, maybe he was just being cruel. Soon after the critical error, Dunch complained that he couldn't see what he was doing. There was too much blood. He demanded more suction, but the operating room nurses couldn't work fast enough. Dunch kept cutting while blood flowed freely. It seeped off the operating table and spilled onto the floor. The nurses mopped it up with towels while Dr. Dunch did what he could to stop the flow of blood and finish the procedure. This seems like an extraordinary amount of blood loss. I understand why that's shocking to you, Alistair. Frankly, it's pretty outlandish to me too because this isn't at all normal. Bleeding is very well monitored and contained during surgeries. And depending on the kind of procedure, there are at least a half a dozen people in the operating room to prevent this sort of massive blood spilling. On top of this, surgeons and their operating assistants recognize that during an operation, stabilizing any bleed is a top priority. So any such situation would be addressed immediately before getting out of control. There are also cautery instruments and suction devices to help with any bleeding, along with staff who keep the room neat and clean during a surgery. Even with the bloodier procedures, like repairing a ruptured aorta, spleen, or intestine, medical professionals are able to keep operating rooms hygienic and functioning. Despite the horrific visual of what happened here, we can take comfort in the fact that Floella survived. When Dr. Dunch was finally done cutting, it seemed like the crisis had been averted. Floella Brown woke up after the surgery and her vital signs appeared to be normal. 
It was too early to tell if the surgery had solved her neck pain, but she seemed to be healthy and comfortable. But the next morning, she abruptly lost consciousness. The nurses wheeled her into the ICU, where they discovered that Brown had suffered a massive posterior circulation stroke. A posterior circulation stroke can occur when blockages in one of the two vertebral arteries prevent blood from adequately reaching the brain. Floella would have suffered a posterior circulation embolic stroke in this case, resulting from the blood clotting that followed her vertebral artery bleed. This could have led to a blood clot breaking loose and clogging a vessel, resulting in a stroke. The gel foam that Dunch used to pack the area also could easily have been a contributing aggravating factor in the embolic episode. This material absorbs blood, and the danger here is that blood clots can form in and around the sponge and travel into arteries downstream. This could create a high concentration of blood clots, any one of which could break off and produce a stroke. In reality, Dr. Dunch's initial mistake would have led to dangerous blood clotting either way, but the gel foam likely exacerbated Floella's clot formation and dislodging. No matter which way you slice it, Dunch's incompetence directly led to her stroke. The doctors and nurses in the ICU did everything they could to help Floella Brown. That same day, Dr. Dunch arrived to perform yet another spinal surgery. This patient was a repeat customer, 74-year-old Mary Eford, whom Dunch had already operated on during his tenure at Baylor Plano. Mary suffered lingering back pain. This follow-up surgery was supposed to provide relief by fusing two vertebrae with a metal plate. Although it's a fairly routine procedure, it's not simple. Spinal surgeries like these usually take several hours. Dr. Dunch, had a grueling workday ahead of him. As he scrubbed up and prepared, one of the operating room nurses noticed something worrying. Dunch's pupils were strangely small and constricted, which may suggest that Dunch had consumed mind-altering substances. Even more unsettlingly, he never seemed to blink. The operating nurse found this strange though not alarming enough to inform his superiors. But that wasn't all. As Dunch put on his scrubs, the nurse noticed that there was a significant hole in the fabric. It had been there for the last three days, suggesting that Dunch hadn't been changing his clothing. Completely unsanitary. Before the nurse could speak up, Dunch was swept away by a hospital staffer who informed him that patient Floella Brown had suffered a stroke. Mere moments before a surgery, Dunch was faced with the fact that the woman whose spine he had worked on yesterday was now in critical condition. Most physicians are trained to work through mental blocks so they can be fully present when performing life-saving procedures. But Dunch didn't or couldn't compartmentalize. While working on Mary's vulnerable spine, his attention wavered. Out of nowhere, he informed the operating room nurse that he needed to perform a craniotomy on Floella Brown, cutting a hole in her skull to relieve pressure in her brain. The remark sent the room of medical professionals into a contentious argument, unrelated to the task at hand. 
While Mary laid on the operating table with her vertebrae exposed, the nurses quarreled with Dunch over whether another procedure on Floella was even possible, let alone necessary. Upset at the pushback, Dunch cut into Mary's spine, slicing with frustration. Nurses and assistants watched as he furiously drilled screws into her spinal column only to remove them and place them into a different spot. It appeared as though Dunch was unsure of his surgical plan, but his movements were swift and unapologetic. The other doctors and nurses realized something had gone very wrong in the procedure, but it was too late in the process to change course or bring in another surgeon. That might become even more dangerous. They had to let Dunch finish what he'd started, no matter how many sudden changes he made. There are subtle on-the-spot adjustments that can be made while this kind of surgery is in progress, but there's always an exact plan that's established prior. Surgeons know exactly what they're doing when going into an operation, and this precise path is always informed by pre-surgical examinations along with guiding MRI images. Dunch's constant drilling and removing screws would have been immediately concerning to the medical professionals surrounding him for more than a few reasons. For one, this kind of sloppy work can lead to unnecessary trauma with the creation of new pain sources or potentially worse complications. Additionally, it would have alerted his colleagues to his alarming lack of skill, a disinterest in patient safety, and given the context of Dunch's childish behavior that day, a possible personality disorder. This is a kind of situation where it's critical for surgical assistants and operating room staff to speak up and do their best to intervene. Depending on the surgeon's response to criticism, it may then be necessary to summon outside help. This kind of dangerous unprofessionalism can't go unchecked, and not speaking up could have devastating consequences, Alistair. Luckily, Mary survived the extended operation but the next day, she awoke in excruciating pain. She couldn't move her toes or turn herself over. The hospital staff knew they had to get her back into surgery as quickly as possible. They called in a more experienced spinal surgeon, Dr. Robert Henderson, to assess the damage. Dr. Henderson took one look at Mary's post-surgery x-rays and was aghast. There was only one word for what Dunch had done to her back. Travesty. Not only had Dunch drilled too many holes in the spinal column, but he'd also amputated one of her spinal nerve roots. A nerve root is a bundle of nerves that protrudes from the spinal cord, and it doesn't make any sense why Dunch would amputate one. His doing this would have caused paralysis to anything distal or below the amputated root. Try to think of the spinal column as a tree, with the brain representing the bushy top. The spinal cord receives messages from the brain, and these signals flow downward to innervate the body's nerves, allowing for muscle movement and sensation. If one of the spine's nerve roots gets amputated, the brain's messaging will completely stop at the point it's severed from the spinal cord. In essence, Dunch severed the nerve chain responsible for muscle activity and physical sensations directed by the brain to those areas of the body below the amputation. 
Basically, he cut the communication between the control tower and the pilot. This wasn't a small mistake. It was a major failure. Dr. Henderson did his best to correct Dunch's mistakes, but he couldn't undo the existing damage. As Dr. Henderson operated, he got a close-up view of Dr. Dunch's work. It almost seemed intentional. After asking around to learn more about Chris Dunch, Dr. Henderson reasoned that one of three things was true. Dunch was either the worst doctor he'd ever come across, an imposter, or he was doing these things on purpose. Either way, Dunch was about to take another victim. After her stroke, Floella Brown's brain activity ceased. Dr. Dunch didn't get his wish to operate again. No amount of emergency surgery could save her. Within a few days, she had been taken off life support by her family, and she passed away. The Dallas Medical Center had seen enough. In the final days of July 2012, they revoked Dunch's surgical privileges. Dunch insisted his dismissal was unfair. When questioned about his use of illicit substances prior to the procedure, Dunch denied it vehemently. He told colleagues he was rattled by the news about Floella Brown's stroke and angered by the hospital's refusal to let him operate on her a second time. Had they let him, he may not have been so angry while performing surgery on Mary. In his mind, it was their fault he made a few small mistakes during her surgery. Luckily, the hospital didn't entertain Dunch's claims of innocence. They simply wanted him gone. For Dr. Robert Henderson, however, the revocation of his surgical privileges wasn't enough. He'd seen firsthand how dangerous Dr. Dunch was. He gathered a few other concerned doctors, and together, they set out to do what both hospitals refused to do. Report Dunch to the State Medical Board. It took months of pressure, but the Texas State Medical Board finally began looking into Christopher Dunch in the summer of 2012. Still, investigations moved slowly, and Dunch remained a free man and a doctor. Like Baylor Plano, it seems Dallas Medical Center kept Dunch's botched operations quiet to save their own reputation. They didn't tell anyone about the danger that Dunch posed. And soon enough, Dr. Dunch wormed his way to another operating table, where he could continue his medical mutilations. Coming up, Dr. Dunch strides confidently into yet another operating room. Now, back to the story. By the early winter of 2012, 41-year-old neurosurgeon Christopher Dunch had had his surgical privileges revoked from two hospitals. It had been about five months since he'd last operated, when, within just two days, his incompetence with the scalpel led to the death of one woman and permanently maimed another. One of his former colleagues suspected the worst, that he might be maiming and killing people on purpose. 
but Dunch was able to cover up his past and secure privileges at the Legacy Surgery Center of Frisco, an outpatient clinic in the Dallas suburbs. Like the past two hospitals, the Legacy Surgery Center assumed Dunch was competent based on his resume. In December 2012, Dunch once again picked up the scalpel. One of his operations at the Legacy Surgery Center was intended to alleviate a patient's neck and back pain. But this surgery might be the most disturbing yet. In the operating room, Dunch slashed his patient's vocal cords and an artery. According to the Oxygen Network, he also pinned her esophagus under a plate near her spine. In the process, Dunch connected the woman's esophagus and trachea. This doesn't sound anything like surgery. It sounds like a scene from the next Saw movie. It's possible that while going in through the patient's anterior neck or front of the neck, Dutch created some significant bleeding in the esophagus and or the trachea. This could have been the result of one of his aggressively sloppy incisions or improper use of the retractor, which is a surgical tool used to separate planes of tissue. In order to reach the spine by this approach, spinal surgeons use retractors to get an unobstructed view of the spinal column. By pushing the esophagus and trachea aside, he could have caused a hemorrhage, forcing him to cauterize the bleeding vessels, which could have unwantingly fused the two structures together. It's also possible that Dunch pinned this person's esophagus under the spinal plate with the retractor. Or, in creating a clear path to the spine, he could have pushed the esophageal tissue back too far, causing a portion of it to become lodged under the plate. This is quite a mutilation, and undoing these mistakes would have been difficult and time-consuming. In terms of the fused esophagus and trachea, these could have been separated and stitched through additional surgery. As far as the pinned esophagus, however, it's likely that the trapped portion of tissue would have quickly become ischemic or oxygen-deprived and died. The regeneration of the tissue would have taken time and also would have resulted in extreme pain. This is a pretty wild occurrence, Alistair, and Dr. Dunch was doling out horrific damage with bizarre surgical choices. Though the patient lived through her operation, she suffered a serious infection, battling for her life. After suffering from the results of the surgery for about two weeks, the Legacy Surgery Center quietly sent the poor woman to a Dallas hospital for recovery. There, she received proper treatment. But Dunch's botched operation had permanently destroyed one of her vocal cords. She'd never be able to speak above a whisper again. One of the doctors with privileges at this hospital, Dr. Randall Kirby, had briefly worked with Dr. Dunch at Baylor Plano. Kirby had seen Dunch's incompetence firsthand and assumed he'd been run out of the medical field. When he heard his hospital had a patient with a botched neck operation, Dr. Kirby made a horrifying realization. Dr. Dunch was still practicing. It didn't take long for Dr. Kirby to find Dr. Henderson, who was fighting the state medical board for Dunch's removal, and join the cause. Henderson and Kirby worked in tandem to spread the word of Dunch's terrors as far as they could. 
they told every doctor, nurse, and hospital administrator to look out for the deadly surgeon. Their courage had a real effect. Dunch's privileges were revoked from the Legacy Surgery Center before he could attempt to join their staff full-time. And in the following months, he struggled to find another job. Dr. Kirby was vigilant, checking in with hospitals regularly to see if they'd brought in any new surgeons. In summer 2013, when Dr. Kirby discovered that University General Hospital in South Dallas had given Dunch surgical privileges, he personally warned the administrators. But they reportedly claimed there was nothing they could do. Around that same time, 49-year-old Jeff Glidewell consulted Dr. Dunch about the neck pain he still suffered after a motorcycle accident. Dunch proposed surgery to fix it, plying Glidewell with the same confidence that lured in his earlier victims. Poor Glidewell fell right into the trap. He booked the operation for June 10th, 2013. Dunch's lack of professionalism was clear even before the surgery began. He arrived at the hospital three hours late, then rushed Glidewell into the operating room. Events went south from there. Dunch performed his signature attack, injuring Glidewell's vertebral artery. As the man bled excessively, Dunch cut one of his vocal cords, then punctured a hole in his esophagus. What came next was equally disturbing. Dunch announced that he'd spotted a tumor on Glidewell's neck. As he apparently tried to continue the surgery, the other doctors and nurses had no choice but to break protocol and intervene, physically pulling Dunch away from the table. It was the only way to stop him from cutting. Unfortunately, as Dunch's frustrated colleagues sewed the patient back up, they didn't realize that Dunch had left behind a sponge inside Glidewell's neck. This is alarming, but unfortunately more common than you'd expect. When surgeons leave foreign objects in their patients after an operation, these remnants are commonly referred to as retained surgical bodies. With over 28 million surgeries performed each year in the United States, it's estimated that around 1,500 of them result in retained surgical bodies, or RSBs. Unfortunately, they never leave anything cool, like a Rolex watch, for example. Instead, these lost foreign materials include small needles and even relatively large surgical tools. The consequences of retained objects can manifest immediately after the operation or even months to years down the line. Some of the associated complications include severe pain, bodily obstruction, and potentially deadly infection. To prevent leaving foreign bodies in patients, the operating room team needs to practice meticulous communication and teamwork. They also need to adhere to the accounting system devised by the U.S. National Surgical Patient Safety Project, which specifically outlines procedures and steps needed to avoid leaving foreign material behind. The lost sponge went under the radar, just as Dr. Dunch had. When Glidewell woke up, half his body was numb. 
Horrified, the hospital administrators realized they'd made a terrible oversight in hiring Dr. Dunch. Forced to swallow their pride, they called on Dr. Randall Kirby, who tried to warn them to see if he could help Jeff Glidewell. Kirby took one look at how Dunch had haphazardly operated inside Glidewell's neck and declared that it wasn't just a botched surgery, it was an attempted murder. According to ProPublica, Glidewell still experiences numbness in one of his hands and arms. But as Dr. Kirby noted, he was lucky to have survived. Previously, it was unclear whether Dunch's crimes were the result of incompetence or intention. But after seeing Glidewell's injuries, Dr. Kirby had no more doubts. Dr. Dunch was intentionally maiming his patients. The failed doctor had finally found something he could succeed at. On June 23, 2013, Dr. Kirby sent a letter to the Texas Medical Board describing Jeff Glidewell's experience and imploring them to suspend Dunch's medical license. Kirby wrote that Dunch wasn't just an incompetent surgeon, he was a sociopath who must be stopped at all costs. A week later, the Texas Medical Board completed its investigation and suspended Dunch's license. Still, after all the pain they'd seen, Dr. Kirby and Dr. Henderson worried it wasn't enough. They turned to the justice system, asking the local district attorney to pursue criminal charges. But the courts moved even slower than the medical board. As Chris Dunch's career fell apart, so did his personal life. He eventually separated from his longtime girlfriend, Wendy, who was pregnant with their second child. Unable to support himself, he moved to Colorado to live with his parents. His omnipresent debt had ballooned to $1 million. His drinking worsened, and he built up a rap sheet. January 2014, police arrested Dunch for drinking and driving. Fall 2014, there was an attempted break-in. Allegedly, Dunch had attempted to take their son. He was arrested again. Spring 2015, dressed in scrubs, Chris Dunch banged on the windows of a Dallas bank, rambling incoherently. Police took him in for psychiatric treatment. His hands were bloody. Late spring 2015, at Walmart, Dunch attempted to shoplift almost $900 worth of merchandise. Despite Dunch's time in jail and psychiatric treatment, it appears that it wasn't until mid-2015 that anyone in the DA's office looked seriously into his past. After interviewing several former patients, they gathered enough evidence to charge Dunch for his malpractice. In July 2015, 44-year-old Christopher Dunch was arrested on five counts of aggravated assault and one count of injury to an elderly person. The prosecutors weren't able to charge him with anything more serious. Texas law makes charging a doctor for crimes committed during surgery extremely difficult. 
Still, Dunch's case was nearly unprecedented. The prosecution needed to prove that Dunch's actions in the operating room weren't just mistakes, they were criminal malpractice. When the case went to trial in February of 2017, many of Dunch's surviving patients testified against him, including his old best friend, Jerry Summers. After a 13-day trial, the jury took just four hours to deliberate. And on February 20th, 2017, 45-year-old Christopher Dunch was sentenced to life in prison. He's ineligible for parole until 2045, a year he turns 74. It's fair to presume Christopher Dunch will never again perform surgery, but that was little solace to his surviving victims who suffered permanent disabilities. As of 2018, ProPublica reported that at least 19 former patients or their surviving relatives had reached private settlements. There have also been multiple lawsuits with the hospitals that employed him. For allowing him to operate, the entire Texas medical system is partially at fault for the deaths of Floella Brown and Kelly Martin. But while it's clear the hospitals hold some responsibility in what happened, Christopher Dunch's true motivations remain a subject of debate. Even if Dr. Dunch's first few attacks were accidental, the fact he continued to operate after such failures was criminal. It's really hard to say if he ultimately wanted to harm his patients, was totally incompetent, or was just plain sadistic. Based on his behavior and the story points you just outlined, Alistair, I have to believe it was an ugly mixing of all these factors. Whatever the case, it's hard to think of a worse scenario than a hospital being financially dependent on such an immensely dangerous doctor. I wouldn't trust this guy to slice a pizza, let alone perform spinal surgery. Whatever motivated him, Christopher Dunch should have never been allowed inside an operating room. Some believe Christopher Dunch was a sadistic monster who enjoyed hurting his patients. Others think he was an incompetent man suffering from a severe substance use disorder. It's highly possible both are true. For as much as Dunch claimed his failings were accidental, his continued moral transgressions both outside the hospitals and in them reveal a far darker truth. No matter how catastrophic a failure, consequences could be a long time coming. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders. And thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Alistair. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Ryan Lee, with writing assistance by Lauren DeLille and Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. 
Hi, I'm Shelby Scott, host of Mediums, a new Spotify original from Parcast. You can join me Wednesdays as I dive into the world of spiritualism and the women that defined it. We'll explore everything from obvious con artists to 150-year-old mysteries. It'll be a fascinating journey, so be sure to follow my new podcast, Mediums, free and only on Spotify.